Welcome, everyone, to Theology and Insanity, your weekly Catholic podcast on theology and insanity, a lot of the insanity that goes on in the church and in the world, uh, trying to bring a bigger, uh, brighter, clearer perspective to uh, what the church teaches and how we receive it and everything. As I'm Dave Van Vickle, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Mike Cirilla. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, David. How are you? I'm good. Hey, I was after one of our last episodes. I don't remember which one we talked about it, but I bought um, uh, Peter Lombard's sentences. So it's my first experience of Peter Lombard's sentences. And oh, great! I love it. So I didn't. Re- so it's it's basically like the Catena Aria, but about Catholic dogma. Is that? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly it. Right. It's a collection of you know yeah. different sayings of the fathers. Right. Yeah, yeah, I love it. It's so on the, good on the I, mysteries, on the Trinity, on the incarnation. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised it's my first experience of it, but uh, well, it hasn't. I don't think it's been in translation for much for very long. I think it's recently okay. translated. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. it's been in Latin for forever. You know, since the 12th century, but I think it's just the last few decades it was translated into English. So it obviously must have had like a big effect on the church if you said that everybody wrote their thesis on that one word. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, right? Yeah, yeah. let's go back to that just for a second. It's What's so beautiful about it is what you have is, in the church, the, the-, the theologians alive in the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries would comment on Peter Lombard, who was putting together the fathers who were commenting on divine revelation, on Scripture. Okay. Okay. So basically, you're, 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 it's not that you can't directly comment on Scripture, because Aquinas and Bonaventure and these guys in the Middle Ages did directly comment on Scripture. Right, yeah. Right, right. But they, did, they, didn't, they weren't so presumptuous as to think, I can, I can just reinvent the wheel. All, you know? Yeah. But rather, they want to they interpret Scripture in the history of how the whole church has done this uh, from the very beginning. In fact, in the New Testament, you have Paul interpreting Old Testament, Jesus interpreting Old Testament passages, Peter, Paul interpreting Old Testament passages, then the fathers of the church interpreting Scripture, and then the medievals interpreting the fathers interpreting Scripture, you know. Um, so it's a way of preserving uh, that tradition, and that's actually very important. That's, you know, I, 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 I want to get, I want to make a clear distinction between traditionalism, traditionalists, and uh, which, you know, is a, is a movement, right, and this very universally Catholic thing, which every Catholic should have, which is tradition, right? Is preserving yeah. what was passed on, as Paul says, we preserve uh, by word of mouth or pass on by word of mouth or, or by writing what we've received from the Lord. And now for us, it's what we've received from the Lord through the apostles, their successors, uh, to the present. Yeah, I, I say that all the time, and I don't know if I have thought out enough of what I say, but I say all the time, like I like to people like, well, I'm not a traditional list, but I am very traditional. Right. And to me, it's well, more ideological or something like that. But, uh, and frankly, a lot of traditionalists in the best sense, they're like, well, it's just really being Catholic. Yeah. Being a traditionalist no, in the I, best I, sense yeah. is just being Catholic. Yeah. Right. I'll, I'll give them the, but I'll listen, that's the... so important for today, for our discussion today, because, um, we said this before in other discussions, um, Novelty is generally a no-no. <laughs> yeah. In other words, you can have new insights, but there's not new revelation. Right. Jesus is the definitive revealer. So all public revelation of all the truths necessary for salvation were, was completed by Jesus and the Holy Spirit by the death of the last apostle, St. John. 
So the church officially, you know, strongly teaches definitively no new, okay? So when we talk about development of doctrine, there's a lot of confusion these days. Oh, well, we could just develop, quote unquote, the doctrine on marriage and divorce or contraception or, uh, you know, the the, the JP2 Institute stuff that's going on there these days with the new president saying, we need to move beyond this stuff and develop doctrine and see that sometimes contraception among married couples makes sense. Yeah. You know, um, no, it can, you know, you cannot, that's not development. That's what John Henry Newman, who right. wrote on development of doctrine, right. he calls that corruption, not development, but really destruction or corruption of doctrine. See, develop, so the, the word development has, to me, it has a connotation of building. But when I read John Henry Newman's uh, On the Development of Doctrine, I re- it's more like drilling down, you know, into the, into what's there already. And and clarifying more clearly. I mean, there's not, you know. Yeah, that's right. But he also talks about it. He gives many different metaphors. And one of the principal metaphors is uh, the body of doctrine is like an organic living being, or the church is organic, uh, a, a living being, living supernaturally with the Holy Spirit as our soul. And so the development of doctrine is the increase of our knowledge. But th- the development is like a an infant to an adolescent uh, human or animal. Um, to an adult, right? So you're the same being. There's not a destruction. You're, you're, you're not right. losing what you are, your right. identity. Your identity is preserved, and it is built upon. It is increased. It's growing, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting, um, you know, somebody who's, like, real close to me uh, often brings up the Immaculate Conception. He's an evangelical. He'll often bring up the Immaculate Conception as the corruption side like he'll say like right, we'll see right. the church the church didn't even name the immaculate conception until you know modern times and and of course that's that's development of dogma you know this kind of thing and, and mm-hmm, basically mm-hmm. criticizes the church but what has helped me because at that time i i knew in general the dogmas of the church but what has helped me is to learn the theology behind those dogmas to realize no no it, it was always there it was always right. there, just wasn't proclaimed necessarily. Or it was, pre- I mean, so... Even in seed form, you know. Yeah, and, and well, so I would say one thing, because I get maybe too picky sometimes, but yeah. but precision is, is, is in, our, in our DNA for theology, at least should be. But, right. But the, the term was, is, precedes the modern period. I mean, it was discussed in the Middle Ages and possibly even... Maybe not in so many words in the patristic period, but you said it, David. Um, you know, uh, the word Trinity is not in the New Ta- in the Bible right, at all. Right. The word transubstantiation is not in the Bible. The word uh, hypostatic union, that right. phrase, is not in the right. Bible or consubstantial with the Father. But but the reality is right that that the the revelation that there is one God, and that the Father is God is the one God, the Son is the one God, the Holy Spirit's the one God, and all three are distinct from each other. But they are the one God, and there's only one God. All of that is there in the New Testament, very vividly, actually. Um, so is the incarnation, the hypostatic union, even though the term is not there. The terms are new. So it's not that you can't have anything new, but the, the newness has to be elucidating or explaining what is already there. Mary is full of grace, as the Gab- angel Gabriel says. Uh, so immaculate conception is a way of precisely unpacking what, like you said, in seed for what's already there. Uh, it's explaining it more clearly. Transubstantiation is a way of explaining more clearly and precisely the meaning of this is my body at the right. Last Supper. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's an example of a good development 
right? So let's talk about when it's either too ambiguous or when it might be more destructive. Yeah, I have an idea right away that comes to mind because it's one that's recently kicking around. Um, Jesus very, very clearly uh, says, and he's, you know, sometimes it's not always easy to understand what Jesus says. In this case, I think it's extremely clear. Uh, Jesus says, uh, he who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Okay, Luke 16, verse 18, or parallel passage, Matthew 19, uh, verse 9, or another parallel passage, Mark chapter 10, verse 11. Um, and so adultery is, is a grave sin. It cuts you off from the kingdom of heaven, Paul says, and that's another way. So mortal sin isn't right. in the Bible, that, that term, but that term explains the sins that, that Paul talks about that exclude you. You cannot enter the kingdom of God if you have them, if you've committed them and you're not sorry for them. Right. Like adultery, okay? So, so there's confusion about this now after the Synod on the Family in 2015. Uh, a lot of people think, well, maybe, you know, Car- Cardinal Casper, I think we talked a little bit about this, Cardinal Casper had the book, The Gospel of the Family. Right. Uh, the Synod was tricky. It's, it was vague. It seems like, well, maybe, and even a Morris Laetitia, you know, there's some passages that publicly people are wondering and ask for clarifications, you know, like, does this mean divorce and remarriage in some cases is okay? Uh, so I don't have to repent and live chastely or continently perfectly in order to receive communion as a married, a remarried right. couple. You right. know? So there's a lot of confusion there. That that's an example where I think I think um, I mean, look, life is complicated, painful, and messy. Absolutely. So I'm not trying to say it's so easy and facile. Just just live, you know, live the right way. No, you can't do it without grace. And, right. and sometimes it's really painful and, and really up. The kingdom of heaven is laid on by violence, Jesus says. You have to, sometimes there's violent upheaval to convert, okay? Right, and To repent. Right. Uh, um, big life changes. But, but Jesus was very clear. So this is not a development of doctrine. A legit, this is a corruption to say, right. divorce, and remar- uh, divorce and remarrying another is adultery in the first century. But then by the 21st century, it's not always. <laughs> or right. frankly, that's a little tradition in the Eastern Orthodox uh, groups where they tolerate divorce and remarriage. They don't like it, they still see it as a sin, but they tolerate it. Well, here this this proposal recently is, uh, I'm not saying the church herself officially is proposing this, but there's ambiguity and difficulty in these teachings so that people are thinking, well, maybe it's okay. That's not a development. It can't be adultery, and then all of a sudden it's not. What's frustrating to me is about this situation is, like, so the synod on the family has... Well, like, I mean, how would you, like, what what is it magisterially? Is it a form of magisterium? Uh, the, the the teaching. Uh, oh, oh, the synod on the family. Okay. Yeah. Like, what what so what, this, what, would, what would yeah. the relationship be? We talked a little bit about this uh, before, but the the synodal system uh, is it, it, it can be confusing because it's not identical to the traditional right uh, synods we've that. had. Yeah, in the history of the church, so we had synod of Hippo where. Right. Se- several of those we we established the canon of scripture, uh, the synod of Toledo where the filioque came out. Well, um, but here, he, and so synods traditionally would be a group, and we have synods in Baltimore for the Baltimore Catechism. So right. we have a bunch of bishops in a local area who get together and make official acts. It's different than a national bishops conference, sure. which doesn't have juridical authority. Synods used to have juridical authority. Then Lateran IV came in twelve fifteen. And it really, it was like the, not civil war, but it was like what happened here in the civil war with Abraham Lincoln, 
is kind of remotely right. similar to there, where power got really consolidated in Rome, as here it got consolidated in Washington with a, with the president. Got really so it's, the synodal system was kind of subordinated to Rome. So now everything had to go through Rome. Synods before could kind of act more independently, and if there was any issue, you'd go to Rome. But now everything has to be kind of funneled into Rome, uh, which which is fun, not not bad necessarily. Kind of unwieldy though when you have what two bi- how many Catholics two billion Catholics right to, everything has to go through Rome. But but the synod, synodal system that Vatican II or at least right after Vatican II was revived under Paul the Sixth was more like a regular. So synods used to be ad hoc when you needed them. Yeah. But now it is on a regular schedule, and, and forgive me, I just don't know the schedule. Is it like every two years or every four years? There can be extraordinary synods, which are ad hoc, but then the regular synods after the council, they're meeting every, I don't know, Dave, I'm sorry, two years or four years. This is not, it's not a council, so it's not all the bishops in the world. It's just select bishops, like the Pan-Amazonian Synod or whatever you have, sele- or the Synod on the Family. You you select certain bishops, try to get a representative sample, and then they issue a, a, a document um, and it's not, their document is, uh, uh, the magisterial status of the synodal documents is um, difficult, right? It's difficult. It's, it's not until the Pope, who's part of the synod, kind of ratifies it and sends out his own, what do you call it, post-synodal apostolic exhortation okay. usually, okay, okay. right, is what it's oh, called, okay. All right. that, 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 the, that the teaching becomes kind of universal, right? So this is a magisterial act, but then the question is... Um, what is the degree of, of weight and bindingness and what's the nature, right, of the, of the different kinds of assertions made? Very often people think, well, this document is an encyclical. That document is a dogmatic constitution. Well, that means everything in certain documents is infallible and other documents, nothing is. Well, that's not true. You, you actually, now, first of all, there is a distinction between different kinds of documents and some have different kinds of weights or modes and of teaching or whatever, or of governing, yeah. But really to find out the weight of a teaching, you don't look at the document really principally. You do the, the genre of the document. Is it an encyclical or an exhortation? You look proposition by proposition. If you look, for example, at Pius XII's uh, letter, is it Apostolic Constitution, on um, uh, uh, defining the dogma of the, immaculate, uh, of the uh, Assumption of Mary, the new dogma in that is one proposition where he says we declare and define as a div- divinely revealed dogma, and then he you know explains uh, that he teaches the assumption, defines it infallibly. But there are other statements in that um, uh, document where he's he is it's it's called munificentissimus Deus, and it is I'm pulling it up right now real quick here. Uh, I, I want to get the type of document correct. Um, but in it, uh, there are many statements such as, uh, it's an apostolic constitution of Pius XII. So just because it's an apostolic constitution doesn't mean everything in it is infallible. Uh, that one statement is infallible. Uh, there may be other statements that are infallible in virtue of having been defined in the past, but there are other statements that are just historical statements, like uh, St. Germanus wrote, uh, said a homily, delivered a homily on the Dormition of Mary. That's one of the statements in there. Um, and that's not a matter of faith or morals. It's just a historical claim. What if what if we were wrong? Sometimes we're wrong. We think somebody wrote a document, but it was a pseudonymous work. So if Saint uh, if uh, Saint Germanus didn't deliver that sermon that Pius mentions, is that you know a problem? Right. Right. No, he he just made a mistake. Let's say you know, and that's okay because that's not a definitive, infallible uh, statement. 
So you got to go, in other words, sorry, it's a lot of uh, mouthful no. here. You got to go proposition by proposition. You got to go statement by statement within the context of the, of the document, of course, and within the context of the entirety of church teaching and, and New Testament and Old Testament. Here's the issue, though, I have with particularly the one on the, the you know, the synod on the family, okay, and, and what we're talking about is like, you know, sometimes like when my kids are fighting, you know, it's like I'm I'm purposefully ambiguous. It's like, well, yeah, yeah. am I the right one or am I the right one? Who's in the right here? And it's like, uh, the answer is no. You know, I'm not going <laughs> to say like which one it is. You know, that's what it feels like is happening here. So we have defined dogma. Then we have people acting, doing an, a magisterial act. It's not dogma, but doing a magisterial act, cutting against or you know, denying defined dogma and no one's saying anything. I mean, well, I mean, you're saying things and theologians are saying things, but as a good father, the church should be clearly saying, well, here's, here's how we look. What I'm saying is that if it's not new, what they're doing, if they're not changing dogma, okay, then they should provide a path for us back to the original dogma. To make it, to say, make it clear. This or is just how clarify. you understand it. Right. Yeah. Well, right. well so um, this is, this is uh, no, Dave, oh my goodness, you said so much there. Uh, sorry. <clears throat> no, it was beautiful, wonderful, thank you. Um, listen, um, the, the theologians at the John Paul II Institute in Rome, some of whom were fired, okay? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Monsignor Livio Molina. Um, Father uh, Jose Granados and others, just champions of JP2's uh, moral theology, Veritatis Splendor, etc. Um, they uh, did wonderful work, and, and Stefan Kampowski, who's, who's an alumnus uh, of Franciscan, who's a professor there, uh, who still is there as a professor, they, they uh, published pieces trying to show the continuity of Amoris Laetitia, which is Pope Francis's post-synodal apostolic exhortation from the Synod of the Family, how that's in continuity with JP2's Familiaris Consortio and the whole tradition of the Church all the way back to the New Testament. So it can be read that way. It can also be misleadingly read. Uh, and so there's confusion, and you'd want... So you're talking about ambiguity as, as a parent. So let's let's talk... Let's so, keep that well, example Well, can I just tell you something? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. That, yeah, yeah. So the fact that Livio Molina... I mean, I... I really trust him. Like, I think that if he's saying it, it's okay. But here's my issue, and this is what I would say to Livio, yeah, to, yeah. To, to Father Molina, if I, or Monsignor Molina, if I were yeah, here, yeah. is I would say, so, so it's just, it's imprudent to make up, to write about a pastoral issue universally. Cause it's not, pastoral issues aren't universal. Yeah, it's a case, but, but there are principles that should undergird them. So when you write about them, People are thinking you're setting down the principles. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But so so they pull. So if it can be read in the right way, it seems to me like they pull a very odd situation <laughs> uh, out, and they make it. I don't, anyways, go. No, they're you, trying you to. Going. They're trying yeah. to respectfully. Yes. No. They're doing what you're saying. Yes. They're trying to make it work. <clears throat> yeah. And. Sometimes that seems like it's a stretch, right? Yeah. Sometimes it seems like it's a stretch. Yeah. Okay, wh- and you're saying, why can't the parent in the analogy, or in this case, our, our majesty, can't they just clarify it and just say, well, you say just return to what it has always been, or you could just say... Or give or, us a path just, there. You yeah, know, yeah, show, give us a pathway. Us, yeah. yeah. So, so in the parent example, uh, if 
let's say your kids are, 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 are fighting about what's the best way to do the chores after dinner. Wipe the table first, then sweep, or sweep, then wipe the table, and it doesn't matter. And you're like, just stop. Right. I'm not going deci- right. to decide the issue. Right. I just right. want you to stop and do your chore. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but if the kids are, are arguing about, is it okay to smoke pot yeah. uh, uh, as, a, as a recreational, like to get high and, and, and laugh and stuff, or, right. or, 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 or shoot heroin or something, okay? Right, right. Uh, then, that, then it's very clear you should not be doing that, right? Right. Um, or, or, or whether I could, could uh, sleep with my uh, girlfriend or boyfriend, okay? Yeah. Very clear. They shouldn't do that. And if you answered, look, I'm not going to solve that problem right now. Well, it was already solved. And you need to reaffirm, of course you shouldn't be smoking pot. Of course you shouldn't be shooting dope. You know, Okay, <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. Yeah. And so this is one of those situations where a lot of the faithful, simple faithful, and, uh, are, and, and you know, I, that's the kind of person I want to be. I want to be a simple faithful uh, Catholic. Um, is like, well, look, it's a very clear teaching of Jesus. Uh, divorce and remarriage is adultery. Uh, so stop, don't do it. Um, and of course, he's talking about active divorce, not somebody passively who was abandoned, but the active divorcer, you know, right. is committing a sin, and remarrying is committing a sin. Now, I, I mean, you may have to divorce for civil reasons, um, for protection of the family and custody, fine. Yeah, but right, you're still okay. married. You're still right. ma- Unless it's a, not a marriage, you were really married in the church. And so you, you know you are, and you don't remarry. If you do, you're committing adultery. That's very super crystal clear teaching, right? So this is why um, theologians from all stripes, it's not just uh, so-called traditionalists, it's uh, Germaine Grise, who just yeah. passed away a few years ago. Aiden Nichols. Uh, Aiden Nichols, John Finnis. John Finnis, um, these are... Neocons, right? These are uh, first things authors. Yeah, right, um, right. Uh, everything from th- people from them to p- like the four cardinals, Burke and Kafara and Brandmuller, um, to p- people of all different, like no, new new right Catholics, old right Catholics, Eastern right Catholics. Oh yeah, <laughs> they're they're just saying, could we please clarify? You know, the the dubia that were submitted. You know, could you just clarify <clears throat> these difficult things? So. So one of the problems that we have experienced, because I'm one of the theologians who made appeal, an appeal for clarification, okay? There was a letter of the 45 theologians listing theological censures of some of the passages in Amoris Laetitia, not because they were heretical, but because they could be, some of them at least, read in a heretical way, so right. we need that to be clarified that it's not, okay? One of the problems that, that, that we and, and all of these folks, including Griset and others, have run into is a kind of, I don't, you know, I don't know that it's like a papal positivism or an extreme ultramontanism. It's the idea that whatever a pope or a council says in an official magisterial document, everything in it is infallible. Uh, if, not, like, if not literally infallible, uh, because it's not a dogmatic definition, still it's going to be true. You have to accept it all is true, and it will never, there never will be a mistake that can be corrected. Now this is this is the issue I want to talk about, and this may um, Who require says us to do so two. This is this well, is a this more yeah. this is d- deep, and this may require us to have at least maybe two parts to this to this okay. podcast. But but anyway, who says this? Uh, nobody says it quite that way. <laughs> I don't okay. know anybody who says it quite that. They way. They just apply it kind of. But when you yeah, but for example, when you say, look, I think there may be a defect, an error, or a mistake in. Um, this magisterial document or that magisterial document, when they say in a non-definitive way right. X, Y, or Z, people will say, like, for example, people who have said that uh, in a public forum, um, 
Or, for example, the letter that we composed was written to the Curia, the 200 or so cardinals in the Curia, but one of the cardinals or their associates leaked it to the press, okay? So then it became public. Then um, a, a number of people have called for the removal of the theologian's mandata. The mandatum is a right. permission and a mandate, frankly, to teach the Catholic faith. And you need right. that in order to teach Catholic theology, let's say, in a given diocese, the bishop has to give you a mandatum, and he gives it to you if you, you're supposed to do this, some places, a lot of places don't do this, but we do it here, you're supposed to profess the oath of fidelity um, and the profession of faith. And the oath of fidelity, uh, maybe we should have that link for that in the pod, when this podcast is published, but the, the oath of fidelity um, has these three levels. I profess to believe with, 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 with faith, supernatural faith, those things infallibly taught by the church as divinely revealed. The second level is I, prof- I promise, I swear, to firmly embrace and hold those things infallibly taught by the church, but they're not presented necessarily as revealed, okay? Uh, but they're still taught infallibly, all right? A contraception may be one of those things. Is contraception's immorality revealed explicitly in the New Testament? Maybe not, uh, um, but it, it is it is intimately associated with the faith, so if you deny it, you deny a big part of what's revealed, uh, namely that you shouldn't separate the procreative and unitive aspects of marital love, um, uh, and, and, and that's taught infallibly, okay? So you right. firmly accept and hold that. You don't necessarily profess it as faith. Like, I believe a profession of faith is I believe in one God, Father Almighty, right. and that contraception's immoral. You wouldn't, you wouldn't right. put that on the right. level. Well, you know, you wouldn't put that on that top level, see? Sure, yeah. But you say, I firmly hold that it is because it's infallibly yeah. taught. The third level is non-definitive teachings, which we're supposed to have a religious reverence of intellect and will. And I say reverence because... There's an issue with the English translation of the Latin typical standard edition of the oath. Okay. The Latin has the words religiosum obsequium. And obsequium is translated, I think, incorrectly into the English as uh, submission. Uh, Religious submission of intellect and will means... To, what does it mean to submit your intellect to something? It means I right. hold it as true. Right. In the Italian official Vatican translation of the oath, in Italian... Is the, they use the word osequio, uh, and osequio for obsequium does not mean submission. It means respect. If my dad says to me, um, you know, like, uh, I'm Thomas Aquinas, you have to be a Benedictine, you can't be a Dominican. Right. <laughs> right. Right. I, I, I don't assent to that. I don't submit my intellect to that if I'm Aquinas and say, well, now I'm, I'm wrong, I have to be a Benedictine. He knows he had to be a Dominican, um, but he, he still has respect for his father in his mind and in his heart, in his intellect and in his will. Right. He respects him. Uh, he's reverential towards him. So um, there's a very critical document. We should link this also in the show notes. Uh, from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, it's a 1990 document called Donum Veritatis, the Instruction on the Ecclesial Vocation of the Theologian. And it says very clearly that, that teachings on this level, which include prudential-type teachings, okay, but not limited to prudential teachings, but just non-definitive teachings, may not always be without defect. And if the theologian thinks they're seeing a defect, they have like a 10 steps that you have to go through. One of them is to think, first of all, maybe I'm wrong, you know, I gotta do research. And then, you know, you you submit your concerns to the magisterium. 
Uh, they say don't go to the mass media, but you can still make public your concerns, okay? Uh, and, and how do you deal with it? So, so uh, the, back to your question is, you know, well, are people saying this, that you have to, that w- you're wrong if you have issues with the Morris or other documents, because you have to accept as true every single thing that every magisterial document says. They're not quite saying that, but what they are saying is um, when people are calling for the removal of mandata, and actually some people have lost their the mandatum that they had because of this, uh, and lost their teaching position, ability to teach theology, permission because to of- teach theology. Because of their questioning of Amor's yeah, Letitia? Yeah, in, in South America oh. in particular. Not, not in the States. I don't know of any case in the States, but in, in South America, yes. Um, uh, so what's kind of behind that is this idea that uh, you, you can't say, and it's just there's something really reverential about this, so I'm very well disposed to it, uh, except, it's, except in the end, I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic, but in the end it's, it's a mistake uh, yeah. that, that every single thing on the non-definitive level is always without error. Now, the problem is, there's a problem with this, and the, the CDF document I mentioned gets right in on this, and it's wonderful. It says, look, even if there are defects on that level, the church cannot be habitually wrong because of oh. the promise of the Holy Spirit to protect us, preserve us, keep the church indefectible. It won't fall away from the faith until the, the gates of hell won't prevail until the end of the world, okay? So there can't be mistakes made that are so chronic and habitual on this non-definitive level that it actually is church destructive. It yeah. can't destroy the church, but it certainly, certainly can harm the church, like we saw in the Arian uh, controversy or the medieval Albigensian crisis or all sorts of crises where, let's say, most bishops fell into an error and were teaching their flocks error, um, uh, but it didn't destroy the church, but it really harmed the church. I mean, don't forget, right? Bishop John Fisher, St. John Fisher, was what? The only yeah. bishop in England who didn't capitulate to the heresy, to the heresy that the king of England or queen is the head of the church in England. So this is interesting because um, I didn't, well, first of all, the mandatum, where the heck is that in most cases of theology, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. hardly anybody. Well, I mean, y- you gave me an example of somebody in South America who had it removed for defending tra- more traditional church teaching, there are people or, or for questioning, for saying questioning, whatever the hell they want in a theology yeah. class, and, and they, you no, know, right, right. and they don't get it removed. But, but, Isn't that interesting? Right. Yeah, it's really interesting. But let me, let me add something. It's kind of sad well, into this. Yeah. Well, wait, just to be clear, uh, I, a, few, a few of the really liberal theologians have officially had their permission to teach Catholic theology removed. Whether or not they had a mandatum, because not everybody gets the mandatum you're supposed to, but not everybody yeah. obeys that. Yeah. Not every bishop, obe- every bishop's right. supposed to require it, but not every bishop does. Yeah. But like Hans Kung, who just passed away as of this recording a few weeks ago, uh, Hans Kung, uh, Father Roger Haight, who's still alive at this, as of this recording, they've had their permissions to teach theology, Catholic theology removed. So some liberals had, and that was under JP two. That was under JP two. So yeah, some of but them I mean, have, as far but most as, of them as don't. As most of them right. don't. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, when when the question about divorce and remarried Catholics receiving communion came out, this is a this is a it's a. I don't mean this to be funny or it's sad. It's pessimistic. I remember talking about it with my pastor, who like 
as background, like if I were to say to him, like, well, I just met Hitler. He's such a jerk. He would literally be like, well, you don't know how he grew up and what his family was like. Like he he defends everyone, you know, he just started like laughing at me because he was like, Dave, how many in, in 48 years of priesthood, how many, how many couples do you think that I, that I know of that have been divorced and remarried and struggle over receiving communion? Like it was just a non-issue to him. Like he was like the fact that the Pope would even or that the church would even talk, take this issue up was so crazy because in his mind, it's like, no, you're talking about the tiniest, the tiniest percentage of Catholics who even desire that. So he kind of just dismissed it. Whereas for me, I was like, well, Father, don't you see, though, that that teaching like you can extrapolate a lot of bad stuff out of this teaching now? If one mortal sin is allowed, why not all the other mortal oh, yeah. sins, you know? And that was kind of his take was like, look, Dave, we got bigger things to worry about. You know, we have bigger things to worry about. And I remember um, anyway, so that it was it, to me, it was kind of like sad to hear him say that because well, it's that's like, mind blowing. I mean, yeah, um, right. first of all, I had no idea. But then again, I know a lot of people like, you know, I know people who are in that position. I don't think it's necessarily I don't know. Maybe he's right. Maybe it's very no, rare. His I, th- experience. I think I think it's rare everywhere, but where you are in Steubenville. Like okay. I, I in in fifteen years of working for the church, I know two couples who were wondering who, if who literally like were like, okay, we have to get our we have to get our annulments so that we can receive communion again. But but are you saying that um, people who have a scruple of conscience, a good a good a pang of conscience to try to fix this as opposed to, cause I do think this, depending on where you look, this may be pretty common divorced and remarried people who are Catholics with no repentance, no annulment, just receiving as a matter of course, that, that, that's or, pretty common. That's pretty common. Yeah, I think. Yeah. That of course that's super common. Yeah. Yeah. Or the, or the other is just like, okay, they don't want me to receive. I'll just go. I just want somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. Or, somewhere else. or nowhere. Right. 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 Um, but th- so that's the thing. I think there is a pastoral issue there, but the way the church is seeming to handle it. But see, I say seeming because Amoris is kind of vague, I guess. Uh, although there's some, uh, there is some follow up to Amoris with the Pope uh, that we could talk, we should probably talk about in a second that isn't quite as vague and it's very upsetting. But but uh, more on that in a second. It seems like what's happening in the Synod of the Family and in Amoris is that there, it is it possible? I guess that's the question. Are they allowing a situation that's just widespread? A bunch of Catholic divorcees with no annulment um, receiving communion when they shouldn't, and are they just saying, "Well, look, that's okay then. Let's just let them do it." They, they, it seemed like Cardinal Casper was saying that for sure in his gospel, yeah, he book, definitely gospel was. of the Family. Like we can't c- require them to to live a heroic heroic Christian virtue, uh, and also it would be a sin if they not only, uh, it not only would be a sin for them to leave their new quote-unquote spouse, their, the, the, you know, and, and, and any children, but it would be, now here's the crazy thing, and Amora seems to reflect this, but it's vague enough that it's not clear, it would be a sin for them to not have relations. Right. Marital relations. Well, right. Well, it would be a sin for them to not sin? Right. To not, to not commit adultery, because they're not married to each other. Uh, JP2, JP2 was very clear on this. He said they need to live chastely like brother and sister in the Lord. Here, here's the point that I'm trying to make, though, that I don't think, that I don't know if you you realize, okay, is to me this is like a chess match setting it up for 
way wider interpretation of who can receive communion. I don't I don't see the issue of divorce and remarried people receiving communion as a ma- major issue in the church. I just don't see it. I just it like I just haven't had that to me it's it's a, a, a minor issue of what you what you encounter pastorally. So when I saw them writing about it, I was like, "What?" You know, like and that's what the my my pastor, that's why I was saying that. So to me, it's it represents like a, a the camel getting his nose under the tent. It, yeah, you know, like, yeah, opening it up for like say the German synod, the blessing and approval of homosexual marriages and things like that. Or just or just or just like what I mentioned. I th- I think I mentioned this in another episode where somebody just saying like, oh, well, you you need grace to get out of mortal sin. So if you're in mortal sin, just you'd have to receive communion, right? To get like, yeah, just, yeah, right, oh, right, right, yeah, right. I mean that's Be- because well, see, and Morris, uh, it's tricky. And Morris will say. Uh, the Eucharist is not a reward for the perfect. Yeah. Uh, uh. And and well, okay, but that doesn't yeah. mean that you get out of mortal sin by receiving the Eucharist. Um, but don't you see, like that so. is an annoying statement to me because it, yeah. Yeah, it yeah, 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 because yeah. it 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 sets up this false dichotomy in my in my mind. That okay, so that means that the person's either in mortal sin or they're a saint. No, that's ridiculous. Right, that's, right, that's right, not true. Right. The Morris says uh, the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, but a powerful medicine and nourishment for the weak, and that's true. Like if we're, the, the analogy here is physical health is compared to spiritual health, right? Well, okay, so if you're in venial sin, you can be weak, all right, or you're imperfect, uh, and the Eucharist can heal that weakness and strengthen you. Yes, but if you're dead. Okay, right. in mortal sin is is like physical death. Okay, right. then you don't feed a corpse. You don't give them food. All right. Yeah. The Eucharist is not a sacrament for the dead in spirit. It's for the living who have grace. So if you don't have grace, you have to go to confession first, not the Eucharist. The Eucharist doesn't heal spiritual death. Confession, penance heals spiritual death. Sorry, I just want to make that clear. So Amoris is weird on that. When they say it's not a prize for the perfect, but a powerful medicine for the weak, that's technically true. But if somebody's in culpably in a state of divorce and remarriage where they know you have to have knowledge, right? Full knowledge, full consent. You know you, you know you're committing adultery and you still receive the Eucharist, that's that's no, that's not right. But Amoris seems to be indicating maybe they could do this, you know. Yeah. I'll tell you one of the I keep things saying that, no I keep saying seems to say this cuz No, I know that. No. We I, just need that to I be know. clear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I know that you I I definitely understand that you you're respecting the document and respecting the, you know, the holy office and everything. But well here here's something that a lot of seemed seemed to me more traditional theologians kind of jumped on that I disagreed with uh, that I disagreed with them on and that is I'm not going to quote it exactly, but it was a statement saying, like, oftentimes in the past, the church has proclaimed the rules and regulations about marriage, but never the beauty of, like, the positive side. Do you remember when he said there's some some line in there? I I got to confess complete ignorance. Oh, 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 you're talking about in Amoris. Yeah, in Amoris. Is that right? In Amoris, he says something like... And and for some reason, to me, that 100% rang true. I, I absolutely, working pastorally with Catholics, it like they believe the Catholic Church is the church of no. You know what I mean? And <laughs> like things like the theology of the body, right? That is it was mind blowing to a lot of people that I worked with in parishes. Mind blowing. Like yeah, what? Yeah, yeah. 
like the 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 other side of this like it's not just rules and regulations like it's the beauty of 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 romance and love and how that's a sign of you know or it's a symbol of god's desire for us and god's union with us and all that so i i loved that statement and and so there were things in it that i really liked but the problem is once again it's like this idea of being pastoral over the truth in my mind yeah, and, and you're right, too, by the way. I do respect that it opens the door to all sorts of things if what's being said here is that in this instance you can receive communion in a state of unrepentant mortal sin. Yeah. So that opens up, it really opens up everything. And by the way, Professor Joseph Seifert, he also lost his teaching position at JP2 Institute in Spain. I think it was oh, Spain. Yeah, okay. um, because he actually came right out and said, the Holy Father is a heretic, <laughs> uh, very directly. Okay, so that's a, that's a jump maybe... It's a, bold, it's a bold. It's a bold claim, move. Sure. Yeah, yeah right. but but his concern was 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 well grounded in this, namely what you said that if you if you allow this, it, it destroys the entire moral edifice of objective moral good and evil. That's true. But um, so listen, there's some follow up to a Morris that was disturbing, increasing the problem. So a, a number of theologians uh, su- submitted requests to the Holy Father to clarify. You know, some bishops submitted dubia to the Holy Father himself, right? I uh, to clarify. But then um, the Holy Father answered a letter sent to him by the bishops of Argentina, and his response was put into the Acta Apostolica Sedis, which is the official acts of the Holy Father. Okay. And, and he, he himself, in that, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to quote it word for word, but, but from memory now, okay, so this, you can verify this, uh, said to the effect that, yes, this is an act of the ordinary magisterium, and your interpretation of Amoris, chapter eight, your, that be, that that meaning meaning the interpretation the Argentinian bishop said is this the way to understand it? Right? He said is is correct. It's the only way to understand it. And the way they understood it uh, seems to me. And you have to pick apart this letter. And one of my colleagues uh, in the theology department here, Jacob Wood, disagrees with me on how to interpret the Argentinian bishops interpretation, okay? Okay. Um, but it seems to me that what they're saying is, they're saying, Holy Father, does this mean that under certain circumstances, divorced and remarried Catholics without an annulment who are not going to confession, who are not repenting of their divorce and remarriage, uh, may receive communion? And the Holy Father is saying, not only is that correct, and not only is that my ordinary magisterial teaching, but that's the only interpretation, okay? And, that, and it was after that infamous kind of letter uh, uh, put into the Acta Apostolica Sedis, that a number of, of, of people, including, I think it was one of the bishops, maybe Schneider, Archbishop Schneider or somebody, said, well, it can't be the case that what is a mortal sin in Poland, divorce and remarriage with right. no annulment and receiving communion, is now permitted in Portugal or Argentina. You can't have it's the balkanization of the church, it's the fracturing of the church, and really the Petrine ministry is such a beautiful gift of Christ to the church. It, it, its goal, its its charge, the Pope's charge, Peter's charge, is to be the foundation of unity in faith, morals, and sacramental life. Okay, it's not to fracture it, and I'm not saying he's intentionally. Fra- I mean, it doesn't. I don't have to judge his intention, the Pope's intention. I'm not judging that. I'm just saying that this this isn't helpful. And it's, it's frustrating when a number... I mean, I think Ralph Martin... Ralph Martin mentioned this in the interview we had with him. A bunch of, of, of good-intended, well-meaning theologians and bishops and cardinals have asked for clarification, and they have not had response. 
But but then the Argentinian bishops ask, and they get a response right away, and it gets inserted into the acta uh, of the Pope that uh, this is the right interpretation. Now, now to be fair, you can look this up too. Jacob Wood's article, I think, is in Catholic World Report, where he says that's not exactly what the uh, Argentinian bishops meant. So I don't know. I mean, you know, it's just a mess, and we just need some clarity. That's all. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm like like what you said, like that there was a the at the jp2 institute in spain like he he just jumped out and called him a heretic i i have no intention of even even presuming that what i'm saying is look it's like we're all fighting out here you know we're all fighting out here somebody weigh in on this you know right so so if we talk about this again that'd be great but there's at least something important in this episode we should definitely mention what do you do as a practically as a catholic if you're confused, uh, this is this is just one example we're focusing on. There there are plenty of other examples. There's capital punishment recently, and and now contraception is coming back to the fore. Is that okay or not? Uh, what I about, do want to talk uh, about homosexual the, marriage. Yeah, yeah, I want to talk know, about the capital punishment one because that's a yeah, yeah. We should, but the, but the but but practically speaking, I think it would be unfair to the listeners. If they're like, if they're listening to this, and now maybe you're having a crisis where you didn't before you listened to this episode, right. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> but there's no need for a crisis because um, what do you do? Well, you do what I mean. It's not easy necessarily. It's not painless. It's painful. But you do what uh, good Catholics did during the Arian crisis. Uh, not to overdramatize things, but I think that's pretty uh, 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 adequate example. Similar example. Your bishops are telling you all over the place. Hey. Jesus isn't God. Do not worship him at Mass. If you do that, you're violating the first commandment. You're having a false God. He's just a human. That's, the, that's Arianism. Jesus isn't right. God. He's, right. a, he's the highest creature. He's not God. So do not worship him. What, what do you do? Well, look, you know prior to, let's say you do know, I mean, maybe some don't, but let's say you know that the church has always taught he's God. Yeah. So so and and taught clearly that he's God. And here is a current teaching that may be because I maybe overstated it. Uh, some Arian bishops may have been more vague or ambiguous, like you probably shouldn't worship or whatever, you know, whatever. But you do what clearly has you adhere to what has clearly been taught. So if there's confusion about a, a, a doctrine in the present, and yet you know from the Catechism of the Catholic Church or Scripture, or you know enough about constant church teaching, or you remember JP2, perhaps, you're old enough to remember JP2, right. um, that you shouldn't do this, then you go with the unambiguous, clear, consistent teaching of, of the church, and you you just suffer through the current ambiguity and pray and offer it up, uh, but you, you you don't jump to conclusions, you, you, you just pray f- that this gets clarified. Um, uh, that may sound like cold comfort, but I think that's the way to get through it. No, that's and if you're a theologian. I do, I do you might this have other, regularly. You know, yeah, I, yeah, me too. I do this regularly. Where, where, like, I'll look at the long-standing teaching, and then I'll say, "Is there sufficient evidence that that I'm seeing presented to me to move away from that?" You know, and and there isn't, <laughs> right? But right. like, you know, in the case in the case of like you brought up, you know, the death penalty, that that's a tough one because, they, I mean, they are presenting. They are a lot of them are saying, "Well, we're presenting a new argument," which we can talk about in another episode. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I'd so like in that, which yeah. case, it's like, okay, I like to, I'd like to hear that new argument. Then. That's right. But a lot of this is predicated upon um, realizing that Jesus is the definitive revelation of the Father. 
that 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 there's no further revelation after him. Like Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews says, in many in various ways God spoke to our fathers of old, but in these latter days he has spoken to us through his son and it's a very definitive and final revelation that Jesus made to the apostles and when he ascended into heaven he sent the Holy Spirit who continued to reveal publicly to the apostles until their death of, of the last one, St. John. Then we don't we don't add new, you know, nova, new things are right. no-nos, like radical nova. We don't want a, a nova, a mini nova or a supernova or a medium nova. We don't want any of the no, nova in the sense of you're making something new up out of whole cloth. There can be new terms, new insights into what's already there. In other words, this is really important to, to hold that it's a proper development of, of doctrine. Uh, St. Vincent of Lorenz said, we hold, Orthodox Catholics hold what has been taught everywhere, always and by all, at least in, like you said earlier, seed form. It's not a corruption, it's not a destruction of dogma, it's a development uh, you know, of doc- doctrine and dogma. Awesome. No, this is uh, it's a good discussion. There's a lot that we can start, I mean, there's a lot along this line that we can talk about, yeah. for sure, and yeah, we yeah, should yeah, talk yeah. about. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this has been another episode of Theology and Insanity. Thank you so much for listening. We're starting to get some feedback here. Uh, if you would, if you've been blessed by this episode, consider blessing us back and giving us a rating on iTunes and maybe even leave a comment there. We'd love to hear from you. So uh, thank you so much. We'll be praying for you. Please pray for us. God bless you all. Amen.